Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Monday, February 27th. I hope you had a delightful and restful weekend uh, because the, ne- the next 48 hours are going to be hopping. Tomorrow, of course, the big election. We're going to be talking about that later. Uh, we're going to be talking to a reporter from uh, Block Club Chicago about exactly what does an older person do. We are also going to be uh, later talking to Justin Kaufman from Axios, who uh, did a really interesting article on all 50 wards in the city of Chicago and what you need to know about them. Hopefully he can give us the greatest hits on that. Um, we are also at 445 this afternoon going to be briefly speaking with the candidate for mayor. We are, haven't gotten on yet. Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia is going to join us at the end of the day today. Also, uh, by the way, uh, Patty Vasquez on her show tonight, which of course follows mine, uh, she's going to be talking to Brandon Johnson. So it is, um, it's an exciting day. And then, of course, tomorrow, tomorrow we are going to follow uh, the election as best we can. Uh, Patty, Santita, and I are going to be on the air from 7 to 10, bringing you the results that we can, when we can. Um, there are, <coughs> excuse me, there's the nine mayoral candidates. And in the 50 aldermanic wards, we have a total of 175 candidates. And one thing that I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, excuse me, in a few minutes, there are 22 newly created police district council seats in Axios, Chicago. Monica Eng did a great explanation of, of that police district councils. We're going to talk about that as well. Um, some really interesting information about what we know so far about voter turnout. Our own Andy Miles has been uh, working hard behind the scenes to uh, put together information for us. He was in touch with the Board of Elections, and this is what we know so far. So far... And, you know, it could slow down. So far, turnout looks amazing. Amazing. Um, up more than the last couple of elections, people are voting. Let's say, here's what uh, the information that was put out by the Board of Elections 10 days ago. Um, Chicago is on track for a record-breaking year for early turnout. Now, early turnout, does that mean some of the people who would have voted on Election Day are just coming in early and overall turnout will be similar? We don't know yet. We won't know till after the 28th. But um, the Board of Elections said that they were hoping to get a turnout rate of about 40 percent. Based on what we they see so far, they're hoping 40 percent turnout is uh, where we end up with this race. And previously, we were lucky to get about 36% turnout. 
So people are energized by this. Now that's the good news. The bad news is that um, young people don't appear to be turning out for this race. The worst demographic reported so far from the Board of Elections are the 18 to 24-year-olds. 2.32% of the eligible 18 to 24-year-old voters just a hair over a third over two percent have voted really come on guys this is what the board of elections uh told andy that in the next demographic that they look at 25 to 34 they're a little over 11 percent 35 to 44 um 13 roughly 13.6 percent 45 to 54, again, 13.6%. But here you go. As as we get older, we are more reliable voters. 55 to 64 demographic, 19, over 19% of that age group that is eligible to, eligible to vote has voted. And here we go. Here's my demographic, baby. 65 to 74 over 22%. It's the biggest number. And the 75-plus vote, uh, again, it's it drops down, but it's still higher than the younger demographics, uh, 17, roughly 17.7%. There are, according to the Board of Elections, 1,581,564 registered voters in the city of Chicago. What they've seen so far in early voting and vote by mail is um, 3.3% turnout. So 13.3% turnout is the average. But um, this is, if this is very, very interesting and those numbers may be meaningless to you by themselves, but think of it in terms of the candidates. I think there are certain candidates, perhaps the progressive Brandon Johnson, who are more likely to appeal, and this is my unscientific gut, I think Brandon Johnson is more likely to appeal to a younger voter than an older voter. Older voters are very worried about crime and they're very worried about taxes. So does that mean that Brandon Johnson won't do as well as it looks like he's on track to do? And while most people put uh, Mayor Lightfoot in a position to potentially not make it to the runoff... Don't count her out. She knows how to campaign. I um, follow her social media. And when she was running last time, she was everywhere and she was shaking hands and she was smiling and she was dancing and she was laughing and getting her message out. And then she got elected and 
she kind of dropped that effort. Well, she is revving it up into high gear. That um, lovable Lori is back. Is She's back, baby. And you do not want to count her out. So um, we are looking at these numbers and reading the tea leaves. Are there tea leaves? I think there are tea leaves. If you don't have um, an Andy Miles in your life to reach out to the Board of Elections, Kelly Bauer in Block Club Chicago has a lot of the same information. Um, And you know what? You should subscribe to Block Club Chicago anyway. It's a great publication. And in addition to the hyper-local reporting that they do on Chicago neighborhoods, they break some great stories. You know, the scandal of vaccines and Loretto Hospital, that was all Block Club Chicago. That was Kelly Bauer. So we are on track uh, for record turnout. It looks like we are going to have turnout greater than we have had the last couple of elections. And um, maybe those 18 to 24-year-olds are just waiting are just waiting for Election Day. You know, they want to go in person. What do you think? So uh, we will we will keep an eye on this. You know, as I said, in addition to the nine mayoral candidates and the 175 aldermanic candidates running across the various 50 wards, there are 22 seats up for grabs, these newly created Police District Councils in Axios, Chicago. Monica Eng has a great explainer. We are going to take a real quick break, and I'm going to share with you some of what Monica taught me in her article when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Okay. In addition, if you live in the city of Chicago, you're going to be voting Uh, You're going to be choosing one of nine candidates, probably not to be mayor, but certainly (laughs) to try to get into the runoff. It's, you know, um, most of the recent polling I've seen have uh, still show a lot of people undecided. But the support for Paul Vallis seems to be growing. He's got mid mid 30s. Uh, which is much higher. Even when you take in the statistical range, you know, plus or minus X percent, uh, he still leads the pack. Brandon Johnson, Chewy Garcia, Lori Lightfoot, they are in, for the most part, in the high teens. And, um, you know, low, very low 20s. So could uh, Paul Vallis not make it into the runoff, you know? Anything is possible. We will know when we've counted the votes now, won't we? That is the poll that matters. And as I told you last week, Marianne Ahern was reporting that. Now, remember, when you vote by mail, you can drop your mail-in ballot at the post office on Election Day as long as it is postmarked February 28th or earlier, it is going to be counted. 
which means, especially in an election where there's a lot of people and there's going to be a wide spread in the votes, it could be March 14th before we know for sure who is in the April runoff election. Because all those mail-in ballots that show up have to be counted. And uh, it is possible somebody could, we could think that it's possible that, say, Lori Lightfoot and Paul Vallis are going to be in the runoff, and then by March 14th, oops, all of a sudden it's Paul Vallis and Chewy Garcia. That is entirely possible. So... (laughs) So take a deep breath and fix yourself a nice hot cup of tea. We are in this for the long haul. You know, is it possible a candidate could get 50% plus one and that we would know by tomorrow night? Highly unlikely, almost impossible. Let's call it impossible. So you're voting for mayor, you're voting um for your older person, and you are voting for seats on these newly created police district councils. Now, these activists have been fighting for more civilian input and oversight for the police for a very long time. I'm not sure anybody is happy with this. Um, The people who don't want civilians involved are not crazy about this because it involves civilians. And the people who wanted civilians to have real power and oversight are also unhappy because these police councils don't really have any power. Here's, again, Monica Eng in Axios Chicago has a fabulous explainer article. Let me give you the highlights. Okay. There are 22 police districts. Voters are going to pick in every one of those 22 districts. Voters are going to pick three people, three people to be counselors. These counselors are going to hold monthly meetings going forward. They're supposed to be kind of a liaison between the community and the cops. They get paid 500 bucks a month and they can make recommendations. Nobody has to implement them, but they can make them. They are also in a position, they're also going to be tasked with nominating people to a new oversight group. Yes, I know. This is separate from the police districts, district councils. There's going to be a seven-person oversight group called the Community Commission for Public Safety and Accountability, CCPSA. They will they will nominate candidates, but they do not have the power to choose any of those candidates. They say, hey, you know what? These people, these people, we think these people would be good. But who's actually on this CCPSA? That's going to be the decision of the mayor and the city council. So a lot of the progressives who have been fighting for more civilian oversight of the cops, they sort of, a lot of 
the argument has kind of boiled down to they gave us this window dressing. They gave us this lip service. But the councils don't have any real power. They can make the recommendations all day long. Nobody has to follow them. Nobody has to act on them. They can nominate people to this Community Commission on Public Safety and Accountability. City Council and the mayor don't like those nominated candidates. They don't have to appoint them. So a lot of people are saying that this whole thing is just symbolic, that there's no there's no real power here. Other people are saying it's better than nothing. <laughs> okay. Um, what's interesting, I think, is at the end of this article, Monica talks, Monica Eng talks about how she moderated a forum in the 18th police district. And um, one of the big things is, is these people being nominated to these uh, local police councils. Are they pro-cop or anti-cop? That's, you know, the big, ooh, who are we putting in there? Um, but Monica said when she talked to the candidates in the 18th district, they said neither. They want to support the cops and they want to improve policing. And I would imagine that's going to be the sort of person that gets elected in more so than an anti-cop or a super pro-cop kind of person. But does it matter whether they're pro-cop or anti-cop? Because, again, these police district councils, great. They're going to meet once a month. They're going to tell the police who meet with them what's going on in the community, what the community wants. They're going to make recommendations that nobody is obligated to pay attention to. But is it better than nothing? Maybe. Is it a start? Maybe. It is certainly not civilian oversight of anything. So we shall see. We have, um, obviously... Uh, depending upon where you live, um, there are 120 people on the ballot trying to snag one of those 66 seats. So there you go. In addition to voting for an older person, in addition to voting for your favorite mayoral candidate, you will have to look and see what police district you're in. And in some of the districts, people are running unopposed. Um, but check out your particular ballot, your particular police district. And uh, if at all possible, you might want to do a little research. If you're, if you look this up online and you find out you're one of the police districts that has multiple candidates running, you might want to. Look into who they are and what they believe, what they've, what they've said they believe. You want to be an educated voter. And it doesn't take a lot of time to be an educated voter. 
I mean, looking into who's running for these police district councils is going to be a lot easier than try to figure out when there's like 50 judges that you have to figure out whether to retain or not retain. This will be easy. Doesn't take long. And um, this article that Monica wrote has a lot of links. So if you would like to learn more about this, I strongly suggest that you subscribe to Axios Chicago. It's a newsletter that usually they, they always I love this when it go, comes in in the morning. It says how many words are in the newsletter and how many minutes it'll take. Today's newsletter has 800 words. It should take three and a half minutes to read. I guess they want to convince you that you've got the time to do this. And um, so locally, Axios Chicago and Shia Kapos, Illinois Playbook. I'm not expecting you to read everything I read every morning. But if you have any interest in what is going on in Chicago and the state of Illinois, you can spend 10 minutes on those two newsletters and you can be very well informed. And again, Shia Kapos does the same thing that Monica and Justin do. She provides links. So if there's a little item she's got and you'd like to learn more about it, click the link. Okay? I know I'm always saying you should subscribe to Block Club and all these other things. And that's true. But it's really just a few minutes every day. And what we have learned, if we have learned nothing else as Democrats and progressives, is that we can't just wake up and smell the coffee two days before an election. Okay? You, with a small amount of effort, with 10 or 15 minutes a day, you can be an informed citizen and an informed voter. You can have opinions. You will have the knowledge to have opinions. We have to pay attention every day, every day. Not paying attention every day is part of the reason we got Donald Trump. And it's more important than ever as Ron DeSandwich moves closer and closer to declaring his run for the presidency. He and Trump will probably bloody each other. But God forbid people think that somehow DeSantis is some kind of Republican savior. Look what he is doing to Florida. Get rid of African-American studies. Suppress any discussion about gays. No gays, no blacks. That's my Florida, says Ron DeSantis. Anyway, I, I, I got off on a little tangent there. Um, so that's my rant for the day. <laughs> Um, in addition to politics, coming up, we're going to be talking uh, to Dr. Stockton Mayer. Remember, he's the assistant professor of infectious disease at the University of Illinois Health. I don't know if you saw this um, news item. I, I'm not a sports person, but even I saw it, where a Blackhawks captain, Jonathan Taze, has not been um, a part of the team. He has long COVID and something called chronic immune response syndrome, which I'm not sure may or may not be related to COVID. This is still a part of our lives. We're going to talk to Dr. Stockton Mayer and get more information about some of this stuff. Let's take a break and get started on our day right now. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Dr. Stockton Mayer is our go-to guy. He is, uh, he knows everything there is to know about infectious diseases. He, uh, treats them. He teaches medical students about them. He is with the University of Illinois Health and, uh, joins us again. Dr. Mayer, thank you so much for being here. Joan, always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, how has your health been? Have you gotten COVID recently? Are you okay? No, I haven't had COVID uh, recently. My last infection or my only infection was a year ago, almost. Oh, really? Wow. In December, I had it for the third time. So um, you have the ways to go to catch up. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to reach out to you because I read this uh, article about Jonathan Taze, uh, the Blackhawks captain, and he made this surprising announcement that he is stepping away from the Blackhawks. And at age 35, some people are afraid that he'll never he'll never make it back. And he said that he had long covid and something called SIRS, chronic immune response syndrome. Are those two things related? Is one does one follow the other? Well, I think that um, I think one of the, the terms you really want to focus on is, is long COVID. Um, so long COVID is that condition that occurs after a known or probable COVID infection. Uh, and it usually kind of pops up or is evident after um, a month to three months, depending on the definition and, and who you're talking to, um, like you said, after the, the initial infection. And so this this long COVID is is something that we're hearing a lot about these days that impacts a large number of people that have actually gotten sick with COVID. And we're still trying to understand what exactly it is, what causes it, what's responsible for it. What are the symptoms of it? Oh, boy. Uh, We know that symptoms can be varied and they can differ from person to person. But one of the most common symptoms that you can experience is, is fatigue, uh, decreased capacity for concentration. Uh, some people report um, kind of shortness of breath with, with exercise or persistent shortness of, breath, shortness of breath. And so if you're a professional athlete, you can understand why these can be so impactful to your career and to your performance. Yeah, somebody last time he was out on the ice, he was uh, skating with one of his teammates and his teammates said it was just um, that the, he was clearly, clearly struggling. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, a lot of us uh, gave up our exercise routines, particularly if they involved getting out or playing sports during the pandemic. So how can we be sure whether our shortness of breath is related to long COVID or just the fact that we are now completely out of shape? Well, I think that, that by definition, long COVID is, is, is unexplainable by other causes. So if, if you're having persistent symptoms, um, you know, when you're essentially after a COVID infection, you're getting back to exercise, you feel like your exercise routine is, is, is more challenging than it was, then it may be related to, to your prior COVID infection. Uh, but you have to have that association with COVID, and you have to really kind of rule out some of the other things that can also cause shortness of breath. Um, 
So I think that that's really important to keep in mind. I was reading um, a little bit about long COVID, and the article that I read said that there's really, at least as of this moment in time, no treatment for it. Why is that? Well, I think we're trying to understand the root cause of long COVID. And that kind of brings us to the second uh, term that you mentioned, this chronic immune response syndrome. And I'd like to highlight chronic immune response because that is one of the proposed theories as to why long COVID exists and why we have trouble kicking it. Uh, Our body responds to foreign invaders, if you will, uh, via a variety of different ways. And one of those is through inflammatory things called cytokines. And and these immune response particles may be in this chronic activation of the immune system may be what's, what's responsible for some of the symptoms of long COVID. I've read about cytokine storms for people who had COVID and how oftentimes it killed them. Is this at a much, is this at a, is a low level? Like in, not instead of a, a, a storm, just, you know, some cytokine bad weather? Well, yeah, or, or persistence. And I think that that's also an important thing that, that you brought up. One of the things that really gets folks in trouble with COVID, and particularly those that get severe COVID, is that, it, that acute immune system activation. And it's not necessarily the virus itself, but it's the body's response to the virus that really gets people in trouble and very sick. And so a lot of our therapies are the way we try and combat some of the symptoms of acute infection is with medications that limit the immune system, things like steroids, for example. Now, the thought is that, that perhaps long COVID is is related to persistent stimulation of the immune system or persistent activation of the immune system. Uh, But I think we're still trying to understand that and pinpoint that. And once you're able to pinpoint that, then maybe you can start thinking about therapy. What I will say is that it seems like vaccines are really um, can be very protective against developing long COVID, even after you get COVID. Um, so I want to highlight that because um, even though it's not necessarily a therapy, it's a prevention strategy and can be very impactful. I've read about, anecdotally at least, people who say <clears throat> that after they got their vaccine, their long COVID symptoms went away. Can you explain why that might happen? I don't know if I have a good ex- explanation as to why that may happen. Um, but I, I, I have also kind of read in, in literature some of the similar reports. And so I think it's, again, it's another, um, another, um, what is the word I'm looking for? It's, it's another reason, I guess, to, to, to make sure that you're, you're fully vaccinated, even after you get infection to kind of help prevent some of these longer symptoms. You say that, um, COVID can create sort of an inappropriate immune response, an, uh, an immune suppo- an immune response that is larger and longer than it than it needs to be. Does that mean there's something going on in the bone marrow? Because I had chemotherapy and um, I was warned that the drugs I was taking could rewrite some of my bone marrow, and indeed. Uh, to a small degree, that seems to have happened. So is is we're, are we talking about something that involves the bone marrow, or do I uh, not understand exactly what kind of an Im- immune evol- involvement this brings? 
Yeah, I think that that's that's an important point. And the immune system is is kind of neat because it, it exists in multiple places throughout the body, and uh, it it certainly exists in the bone marrow. Uh, it exists in our lymph nodes. It exists in our spleen. It exists in our blood. And so it's really all over the place, which is why it causes so many problems. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, for example, COVID, uh, and particularly acute COVID, long COVID, can impact a variety of different organ systems, like the heart, the lungs, the brain, et cetera. Hmm. Uh, we need to take a break. I'm talking to uh, Dr. Stockton Mayer who is with the University of Illinois Health Systems. He's an assistant professor of an infectious disease. We are talking about COVID and CISR, which I'm still not sure I understand. So we are going to talk more about chronic immune response syndrome when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am talking with uh, Assistant Professor of Infectious Disease, Dr. Stockton Mayer. He's from the University of Illinois Health Systems. And I read some time ago an article about Black Hawk Jonathan Taze. Dr. Mayer, before he ever talked about long COVID, he made a public announcement that he was suffering from chronic immune response syndrome. And then later he said, by the way, I also have long COVID. So I took that to mean that these are two separate illnesses. Is, is that correct? Well, I think that to, to me, the, the highlight of, of, those, of those two terms is, is long COVID. And I think that when we, we talk about long COVID, why does the long COVID exist? And I think that the chronic immune response is, is one of the proposed explanations for that. So when I see that statement, I think that's kind of how I frame things in my mind as a clinician. And uh, I think that there's probably a lot of interconnectedness between the two. And just to be clear, this, do you, do you, do you call it SIRS? <laughs> when you talk about it, what do you, do you say chronic immune response syndrome? Um, or is the, or well, do you use the acronym? Well, the, I tend to talk about it in terms of long COVID. Uh, oh. I think that. The the reason I, I talk about it in terms of long COVID, because it's a little bit more of a defined defined term. And I think that uh, when I talk to, to folks about what long COVID might be or or what causes it, I, I bring up some of the, uh, the inflammatory components uh, that may contribute to things like long COVID. Um, so I think that, you know, it very well may be, and obviously I, I don't know Mr. Taves, but uh, it very well may be that, 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 the impact or the strongest impact uh, on his health is, is kind of the long COVID and the sequela from a prior COVID infection and the proposed mechanism perhaps being uh, his chronically active immune response system. And to be clear, this chronic immune response, it's not pneumonia, right? It's not necessarily pneumonia. Pneumonia kind of implies a um, kind of an inflammation specifically of the lungs, uh, that is caused by sometimes a bacteria, a virus, a fungus, or sometimes non-infectious causes. But when we talk about long COVID, we talk about a constellation of symptoms that really impacts a lot of different organ systems. It may impact the lungs, it may impact the heart, it may impact the brain, so a lot of different things. And as I mentioned earlier, for a, for a, a high-performance athlete like Mr. Taves, it's a, uh, it, it can be very impactful. Is there a demographic that is most susceptible to long COVID? It, it does seem that, that people that are uh, older, uh, that are female, 
that have more medical comorbidities uh, are at greater risk for developing something like long COVID. Some of the estimates out there point to maybe 10% of people with COVID develop something like long COVID. But we don't necessarily know the impact of the specific variants on long COVID, et cetera. It's something we're still learning about. But a sizable number of people uh, in this kind of older demographic with more medical comorbidities tend to be the most profoundly affected. Now, we have also seen younger people and very healthy athletes get sick with long COVID. And uh, Jonathan Taves is another example of that, it seems. But some other athletes, professional athletes, people like Lionel Messi had reportedly um, struggled with return to activity after COVID uh, and other professional athletes. So uh, even though there's a specific demographic that that long COVID does seem to affect, all folks are at risk. And uh, it can be very impactful for people that depend on their uh, physical activity for a lifestyle. As I mentioned earlier in the interview, I have had... Uh, COVID three times. The first time it lasted like eight or nine days. The second time it lasted four or five days. And the third time it only lasted two or three days. So I sort of feel like I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm being careful, but I'm also kind of a little cocky, like, oh, you know, I've had this before. You know, each time it's been a little bit easier. Am I am I being um, ignorant here? Because I've also read that just because you had certain symptoms and a certain kind of experience with COVID six months ago, that doesn't predict what you're going to experience with COVID next week. I think that that's 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 a safe uh, a safe understanding. So just because you had COVID once doesn't necessarily mean you're completely out of the woods and that you're not going to get maybe sicker the second time. I think that there's um, there's a lot that kind of goes into how sick someone may get with a uh, with COVID or, or another variant. I will say that people that got very sick are sick very early on in the pandemic, by and large, probably got sicker than folks that maybe had gotten vaccinated and then gotten sick after the vaccination because they didn't have any uh underlying immune knowledge of the of the virus and they were caught completely off guard. Uh, but uh, some people that get, for example, a second infection uh, do report that their symptoms were worse the second time than the first. Although the likelihood of you getting really sick, um, particularly after vaccination, after prior infection is a lot lower than maybe initial illness and particularly those that got sick very early on in the pandemic. How long does my I got I got everything. I got all the shots. I must have like five shots under my belt by now. How long does that protection last? And how long, I assume, since I've had the illness most recently in December, I have some sort of protection from having had the illness. How long does that last? That's such a good question. And that that is something that I think we're understanding uh, more and more as time goes on. And I think it's it's something that, that people in in the literature continue to update. So, you know, how long are we protected, for example, after an initial infection or after an infection with COVID? Well, we used to think it was much shorter, but now we're starting to think that perhaps it's longer, maybe as long as seven, eight months, something like that. So we enjoy maybe a little bit more protection from having gotten an infection, for example, like I got in July 
I may have been um, uh, a little bit further protected over the course of the early fall and winter. And maybe that's what why maybe some of my friends got sick and I didn't. So we are still learning exactly how long we're protected by our vaccines and by prior infections. But I think we are understanding that that, that protection, particularly for a uh, natural infection, lasts a little bit longer uh, given um, given what we're seeing in the signals in the literature. And I think that that's kind of good news for maybe how long or how often we need our booster shots uh, for things like COVID in the future. So what you're saying is since I had it in December for the next few months, I can pretty much get out and party? <laughs> Certainly how, how how you party is, is your choice. <laughs> I think that I think that uh, I think that, you know, it's important to, to kind of understand that everybody is it has their own level of, of risk and, and risk tolerance and, and to be understanding and accepting of that. Uh, so some people are, are not going to feel very comfortable if they've got underlying uh, immune conditions going in a large kind of restaurant or a public venue like a concert um, without like a can 95 or an N95 because, you know, because maybe they've got um, other issues that may cause them to get more sick. And I think that, you know, understanding, having that conversation with your doctor about how much you can party versus how much maybe you should be conservative is really important. And a lot of it kind of depends on your own particular situation. I also, when I was reading about long COVID this morning, it said that while there are no set treatments for long COVID, there is medicine that sometimes is given to people to reduce fatigue. What medicine would that be? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I think that certainly for COVID, I think we talked about this on prior shows, there are medications that you can take if you get acutely sick with COVID that will help in the instance that you, uh, in, in that kind of immediate instance with some of your, your symptoms. And that includes uh, improvement in perhaps uh, your fevers, your cough, uh, your headaches, et cetera. Now, as so- far as Long Go ahead. term, as far as like long COVID and some of the medications you might take, you know, a lot of, um, as we kind of talked about earlier, there's no real defined therapy, but some folks may uh, work with their doctors to treat some of the the symptoms of long COVID, perhaps if they're feeling uh, anxiety or uh, depression as a result, uh, they may work with their doctor to put them on medication specifically for those symptoms. So we're not talking about pep pills here. We're talking about maybe an antidepressant would help ease fatigue. It entirely depends on what the etiology of your fatigue is. And it entirely depends on on everything that's going on. Uh, And so I think the best recommendation is to, if you're experiencing long COVID or you're experiencing symptoms uh, from it, to talk with your provider about resources uh, for long COVID and to to get a clinical evaluation. Uh, because I think that understanding, like I mentioned, the the cause behind fatigue, making sure that there's nothing else that's going on to make sure that uh, it's been maybe the appropriate time frame to start worrying about things like long COVID, all that is very important. Well, I feel like I've been fatigued for um, the entirety of my adult life. And if there is a treatment for that, (laughs) please, please tell me what it is. (laughs) Oh, boy, I, 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 I feel you. Uh, and uh, for me, that therapy is a morning cup of coffee, unfortunately. No, but I think that, uh, all joking aside, it is it is um, very important um, to, and you, you spoke about this a little bit earlier, to, to, to maintain 
your rhythm and physical fitness and to prepare yourself for some of these stressors that life will throw at you. Um, and that includes viral stressors, bacterial stressors, et cetera. And we saw that a lot of chronic medical com- uh, comorbidities, things like diabetes, uh, things like hypertension, um, things like chronic lung disease really impacted how people respond to the, this virus. And so I think that it's always a good rule of thumb to kind of boost your um, endurance uh, to decrease your susceptibility to a lot of diseases to, to, to try and get out there, exercise, stay fit to the best of your ability, uh, because that can help uh, decrease your risk for some of um these poor outcomes and can help boost some of your energy levels in the long term. I've also been reading a lot. You know, there was a lot of talk about different um, non-medical things you could do. And the one thing that seems to have survived all of the evaluation is vitamin D. Is is that supposed to make us more resistant to COVID? And if we get it, make it a little bit less painful and maybe of shorter duration? I you I don't know if you're going to like this answer, but I really <laughs> love the idea of a comprehensive approach uh, to disease prevention. And while vitamin D may may offer some benefit, just by itself, I don't think it's enough. And I think that when we talk about the things that can really kind of help prevent disease and uh, problems from disease and and chronic issues related to disease, you know, focusing on making sure that uh, that we're eating good, healthy food, making sure that we're exercising, making sure that we're getting sleep, making sure that we're taking time to, to rest and relax. Uh, all that stuff is incredibly important to health and, and outcomes. And I think that if you take all of that as a whole, it's going to be a lot more beneficial than, for example, continuing a, a current lifestyle and just taking vitamin D. Okay. As far as um, Jonathan Tays, uh, the article that I read was was pretty somber in its outlook, basically not wanting to come out and say flat out, but implying that, you know, I mean, he is 35, which for a, for a hockey player at his level is <laughs> is elderly, that this might be the end of his career. I mean, he's had this now for a while. Can is it can a person come back? You know, that's such a that's a, a, such a good question. And, you know, uh, I know that these guys out there, uh, particularly people like Jonathan Taves are warriors when it comes to the athletic arena. And uh, we see a lot of athletes doing incredible things uh, at later ages because of the way they take care of themselves. So I, I never say never. Uh, and particularly with these guys that are in such peak physical health. You know, I never, um, you know, I, I would never say say never. Uh, but I certainly understand some of the concerns that, that maybe the, the media have uh, about that and, and age, et cetera. But um, these guys really do take take very good care of themselves. And um, I am very hopeful that he, he has a, a great recovery. Me too. Um, Dr. Mayer, thank you so much for joining us once again and answering all of our questions once again. Um, stay healthy, okay? Yes, likewise. And thank you so much for the invitation to, to chat again today. We are going to take a break. We're going to uh, listen to some news. 
And uh, then we're going to talk to a Block Club Chicago reporter who did a really interesting article. That's what do older people do? I think we should find that out right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I'm always telling you about Block Club Chicago and how terrific I think it is. And uh, Kelly Bauer, among others, they've broken some great stories. Well, uh, there was a, a story that when I saw the headline, I thought, you know, this is the kind of thing that sometimes reporters... Uh, forget the kind of story that reporters forget to do, but it's so important. The headline was, What Do Chicago Alder People Do? The uh, article was written by Quinn Myers, who joins us now, uh, to tell us what alder people do. First of all, Quinn, welcome to the program. Hey, Joan. Uh, thanks for having me, and uh, happy Election Eve. I can't believe it's finally here, for better or for worse. Yeah. What are you going to be? Are you going to be out at a headquarters or, or watching it on television? What are you going to be doing tomorrow? Yeah. You know, each block club reporter is covering about four aldermanic races. I'm going to be kind of all over the place. Um, I'm going to be definitely down um, covering the 14th Ward. Uh, that's outgoing alder person Ed Burke. Um, he, of course, is not running for re-election, so I'll be covering um, whoever his um you know, whoever is taking his place and also be covering the 36th Ward, the 30th Ward, uh, and also 32nd. But that one's pretty easy because Scott Wagesback, of course, is, is uh, running unopposed. But I'll be all over the city, as will every block club reporter. will be covering every single aldermanic election tomorrow night. So when you go to the 32nd Ward headquarters, um, you know, your reporting is just going to be, yep, it's Scott. He won. <laughs> I think so. You know, I don't know if I'm going to make it over to the headquarters. I might just be a quick phone call, actually, yeah, for that one. You know, it's really amazing to me what kind of turnover we're going to be seeing this time around. We've got retirements. We've got people who are um, going to be um, taking over newly uh, elected offices that they've won. We've got Sophia King and Rod Sawyer who are running for mayor and have to vacate their seats. I mean, and you've got like Ed Burke requir- retiring, Tom Tunney ret- retiring, Leslie Harrison retiring. I mean, it's going to be... I think one of the most fascinating elections that Chicago's seen in a long time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's going to be a huge sea change in um, the city council's makeup, let alone the mayor's office, potentially. Um, I think they're going to be uh, more than a dozen, definitely dozen new alder people. Of course, there could be as many as uh, 50 new alder people, right? Well, close to 50. There are a few running unopposed. Um, but it's going to totally change the makeup of the city council, bring in a whole new generation. You mentioned Ed Burke, um, another person who is uh, stepping down, James Kappelman, the uptown alder person. There are a lot of people who are not going to be around, who have been around for a while. Um, so there's going to be uh, a totally new agenda in city council. And that's kind of why I want to do this story. What do Chicago alder people do? Maybe a dumb question, but also, you know, it's a I no. It's like I, <laughs> I think it's kind of like, OK, like, you know, we're voting for these people. We're paying them each of them over one hundred thousand dollars a year in taxpayer dollars. What do they even do all day? Like, how do they impact our lives? And so I'm sure we'll get into it. But that's kind of the approach I took uh, to writing an article, breaking down their responsibilities. Well, you know, when I saw that headline, I thought, well, I I know you call the alderman if you need a new garbage can. I know that's a biggie. Um, and I suppose it, maybe if there's something wrong with your sidewalk or you know, there's a pothole. And, you know, beyond that, I'm thinking, you know, if I had to write up a job description, 
I don't know that I could do it. So what do we need to know about what these people are doing or at least supposed to be doing? Sure. Well, you mentioned the kind of city services aspect, and I would say, you know, let's break it down into two main categories. We got we have city services and then policy and kind of the legislative side. So city services, you're right. You know, okay, there's a pothole on my street. Uh, garbage hasn't been picked up. Um, why hasn't my street been plowed yet? You know, we have this three-one-one system, which is supposed to be this centralized way to report issues you're having with city services. Of course, uh, that system isn't always the most efficient. So sometimes when you're having an issue uh, or that hasn't been fixed, uh, you give your alderman a call, and perhaps that they can kind of, you know, supposedly grease the wheels or at least use some of their clout to call someone down at City Hall and say, hey, um, the 2,500 block of whatever street hasn't gotten this service, can we get someone over there? Um, so city services is definitely a huge part of um, each older person's role. You know, we call them these mini mayors. Uh, I talked mm-hmm. for the article, former older person, uh, Amea Pawar, he called them feudal lords over their <laughs> over their respective wards. Uh, and I think that is kind of true. You know, they do have, they are these little fiefdoms where, um, of course, they don't have absolute power, and uh, all the people have kind of lost some of their grip on power in recent years, but they do have uh, that kind of, you know, power to uh, get something done quickly in their ward, um, especially uh, if it's an issue that they can kind of resolve in a phone call or two. Um, and, of course, they have people coming into their ward offices all the time complaining about everything from development to crime to speed bumps or the lack thereof. So it's kind of this, uh, you know, person, your go-to person in, in your ward. Before we move off of this idea of, you know, one of their big functions is city services, I've seen both arguments. You know, obviously, Lori Lightfoot, gosh, I was there for her inaugural speech, and she was basically, you know, see all these uh, city council people? Yeah, I'm going to try to take as much power away from them as I possibly can, because you know they're corrupt. And, you know, I've talked to various older people, and, you know, her argument is, that if you have to get the older person to sign off on something you want to do that invites corruption, like, oh, well, you know, here's an envelope full of cash, make sure I get the signage that I want or whatever. And yet the older people who I spoke to said, you know, nobody knows the ward like we do. For instance, one alderman, this was very early in uh, Lori Lightfoot's tenure, one alderman said that the city approved a block party in his neighborhood. And he said, I knew from working there, living there, I knew that this was going to be trouble. It had to do with where gang territory was. I knew the people who wanted to do this couldn't be trusted to do it safely. And that's that's where my why I should have the final say on stuff like this, because I know my ward better than some bureaucrat at city council who just sees an application for a block party and rubber stamps it. Um, did you get any, as you were doing this reporting and looking into the aldermanic structure, did you get any feel for how we, how do we straddle that? How do we balance that? We don't want corruption, but on the other hand, we want their expertise. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, in those kind of small little things, they do open up um, the ability for favoritism, um, possibly for corruption. I mean, you know, a famous example is Alderman Ed Burke is now under indictment, facing trial probably this year for, um, you know, supposedly allegedly shaking down the owner of a Southwest Side Burger King over a driveway permit, right, trying to steal steer uh, business to his uh, tax appeal law firm. So that obviously is, you know, an aberration, uh, 
for the most part. Um, but mm-hmm. there also is that, that legitimate uh, concern of each other person. Hey, I know what's going on here. I know um, I work with this neighborhood group on this on this agenda item. I know this person. So I do think you're right. We don't have a definite answer for that. There isn't clear guidance. And a lot of this so-called aldermanic prerogative, aldermanic privilege, um, we don't really have an official system. It's more a de facto system. And I think that's kind of how a lot of things are run at city council. You know, there's there's the, the textbook way, the legal way, and then there's the kind of actual way, right? Um, so mm-hmm. I think the people who are calling for reform, like Nair Lightfoot, um, they want to say they want to go towards a more um, by the book uh, approach, but of course that's not how Chicago works all the time. It's never really been how the city has worked, right? Mm-hmm. Um, before we start on the other big branch of what older people do, which is um, creating policy, uh, Quinn, why don't we take a commercial break right now so that when we come back, we don't have to interrupt our conversation. I'm talking to Quinn Myers, Block Club reporter, who wrote, What do Chicago older people do? We are going to learn more about the, what these mini mayors do when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Quinn Myers is a reporter with Block Club Chicago. And a while back, a couple of weeks ago, wrote an article, What Do Chicago Older People Do? We have just been talking about one of their big functions, which is to make sure that their constituents have the city services they need. But there's another big area of work that they do, and that's creating policy. Quinn, talk about that. Sure. Well, city council is, of course, Chicago's legislative branch, with the mayor being the executive. Um, So city council uh, members are introducing, uh, vetting, amending, and ultimately voting on what we call ordinances. Uh, In common speak, that's laws, right? Um, So that ranges everything from an honorary street sign on a main thoroughfare to um, adding permanent parking to a street to huge citywide policies like, um, you know, supporting mega developments, um, police misconduct, um, resolutions, stuff like that. So it really is a huge um, area where older people uh, can show, um, you know, it, <laughs> a huge area where all the people can show, um, you know, their uh, agenda, their um, ideology, um, and it ranges everything from those tiny little things to huge measures. I mean, the city budget is a huge area where all the people can show their influence. Every year they vote on the mayor's budget. Um, and last year that was $16.4 billion. That funds everything from city uh, departments like the police department to, um, you know, violence prevention efforts. Um, and that's a huge power to kind of say, this is what we're going to focus on the next year. This is how we're going to spend taxpayer dollars. Um, and so all the people really have outside influence um, in all these kinds of uh, policies. Talk about zoning. <clears throat> that's always a, a real contentious area. It is. I mean, zoning is a huge area where all the people have power. Um, and that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the aldermanic prerogative area um, where they have say over kind of what does and doesn't get built in their ward. Um, so city council must sign off on pretty much all zoning amendments uh, ranging from, you know, stuff like the um, Lincoln Yards uh, mega developments, which needs a zoning change um, to, uh, you know, sometimes smaller residential additions, uh, everything in between. Um, and so when we talk about aldermanic prerogative, um, aldermen have typically had a lot of uh, say uh, if they don't want a building or they don't want a development in their ward, um, they can kind of kill it. Um, that has been challenged in recent years. A huge kind of high-profile example was this Northwest Side Affordable Housing Project, 
uh, back in late 2021. Um, this is Nero Hare. It was a 300-unit apartment project, about 20% affordable. Um, Alderman uh, uh, Anthony Napolitano was pretty opposed to this, saying his constituents did not want such a dense development. I mean, that's on the northwest side where we do see a lot of bungalows, a lot of single-family homes. Um, you know, the city council, with the backing of Mayor Lightfoot, they ultimately overruled Napolitano, and they approved that zoning change. So there have been these kind of cracks in that process, although typically um, aldermen still have outsized power. If you go to a zoning committee meeting uh, any month in city council, the first one of the first questions that um, now Chairman Tom Tunney will ask is, hey, do you have a um, letter of approval from the local alder person? So typically uh, they still are kind of weighing in on whether or not they want these major developments or even smaller uh, projects in their ward, um, although we are seeing you know, some of the cracks in that system. Um, speaking of Tom Tunney, one of the people who has decided to leave, and uh, I've heard some people say that there's going to be a real uh, lack of institutional knowledge of how things work because there's going to be such great turnover. Do you do you see that? You know, that's a good question. I think um, some would say that's a good thing. Some would say it's a bad thing. Um, we are seeing this uh, uh, this huge turnover, and there are going to be only a few kind of, of these elder uh, older people, these elder states people. Um, you know, like Anthony Beal is one if he gets reelected. Um, Walter Burnett, I think, will be end up being the longest serving um, older person. He's running unopposed in the 27th ward. Um, so I do think it is going to be a sea change. Whether or not that's a good thing or not, I guess will remain to be seen. And I think a lot of it has to do with who is in the mayor's office and how the mayor works with uh, city council. You know, for years and years under Daly and under Rom, we the city council was not much more than a rubber stamp at times. Mm-hmm. Kind of just approved whatever. Um, the mayor put forward and we can kind of look at maybe, you know, the, the so-called weak mayor, strong council system that we're supposed to have in theory. Um, but it, it really depends on how the next mayor, whether it's Mayor Lightfoot or someone else, approaches city council. If they approach it in a way where they want to, uh, you know, support let, uh, city council members to introduce their own legislation or if they just want to, you know, if they just want to run the game and, and introduce their own ordinances and expect approval from city council. So I think, th- I think that will have a huge influence on whether or not the kind of institutional knowledge really matters as much as it once did in, in city council. Well, we do have, at least on paper, a form of Chicago government that is strong council, weak mayor, and yet it's never been that way. And I think recently, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm relying on my memory. I think it was Matt Martin who recently said, hey, you know what? We should choose our own committee chairs. We're the city council. We should do that. That shouldn't be something the mayor does. But I don't know that that idea has moved forward. It it has not, but it is being talked about more. And so, you know, okay, committee chairs, why do these even matter? Well, each committee, uh, each ordinance has to move through a council committee. If it's approved by committee, it goes to the full city council, right? So basically the head of each committee gets to decide whether or not uh, a piece of uh, legislation is brought up for a vote. And um, often, actually pretty much uh, always, (laughs) de facto, uh, the mayor has chosen those committee heads, basically ensuring that the mayor has, uh, you know, approval over what goes through city council and what doesn't. Um, So the mayor pretty much has a say uh, in everything that happens uh, through city council. Um, and we saw that happen, um, you know, somewhat recently with the Chicago Fire Training Academy, um, you know, on the near west side where um, it actually ended up uh, not passing zoning committee. And then it got re-passed uh, through zoning committee at the insistence, likely, uh, of the mayor's um, council allies. Um, but, yeah, Alderman Matt Martin has kind of um, 
and a couple other all the people are have, have approached you know changing that system um asking city council to uh, approve their own committee heads um the legislative body having the legislative body choose who gets to head up those committees and therefore the person who would uh, advance legislation. So that is a challenge to the mayor's power and city council. Hasn't gone anywhere. And again, I think um, people are probably waiting for the dust to settle with the election to see what will happen on that. But that would be a, a major change um, to how city council does business and how they operate with the mayor. Um, Alderman Anthony Beal and others have also called for the city council members to have their own parliamentarian, their own attorney to represent them when they uh, reach an impasse with the mayor over a rule of order or something else during city council meetings. Again, that hasn't moved forward, but it is something that's being talked about to kind of, um, you know, give the supposed strong city council even more power. One of the topics in your article that we haven't touched on yet is public safety. Talk about that. That's right. You know, we're seeing uh, many mayoral candidates and many aldermanic candidates running on public safety, right, saying, um, you know, violent crime is high and we need to do something, we need to do X, Y, Z. Um, and I think it's a kind of open question over how much each alder person can actually do when it comes to crime and, and public safety when we have such a, a high, uh, we, we have such a, a citywide uh, gun violence, especially a problem, right? It's not like these invisible fences go up at ward boundaries. It's not like people are going to say, oh, that's this alderman's ward. He's tough on crime, so I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to not cross the street, right? Um, but there are a few things that all the people can do. Um, they can develop relationships with their police commanders. Um, a few people I've talked to talked about how, you know, if you have that relationship, you can say, hey, uh, we're having a problem on this block. Is this a problem with this house or this group of people? Can we get an extra patrol over there? Um, they can uh, use their menu money. That's the $1.5 million in, in uh, annual money that all the people get every year to kind of, uh, you know, fund cameras or fund other public safety initiatives. Um, there also are legislative priorities they can do. Um, Alderman Daniel Espada in, in Wicker Park in recent years has instituted these overnight parking bans on major uh, commercial corridors to kind of limit public partying. It really arose during the pandemic when people couldn't go into bars, so they were just drinking and uh, partying on the street, which led to an increase in crime. So there are some small things um, other people can do. Of course, they can also influence the budget, right? They can allocate how much money goes to the police department and also notably how much money uh, the city gives to violence prevention groups. Um, mm -hmm. Again, Again, there are limits to what all the people can do. You know, I think I think going into tomorrow's election, uh, you know, voters should be aware that a lot of it is rhetoric, um, and you kind of have to read between the lines and look at specific plans as to what all the people can do and how they're going to balance both, you know, funding police on the street, but also funding long-term violence prevention strategies. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that uh, every older person has a fund, which is a sort of a discretionary fund. What can they use that for? Right. That's called menu money. Uh, right now it's $1.5 million. And that's typically for infrastructure related improvements, repaving streets, um, funding speed bumps, that sort of thing. Um, something that's interesting about the menu money is in recent years, uh, several aldermen have um, instituted what we call participatory budgeting, basically taking a chunk of it and kind of creating an online survey and saying, hey, what should we spend this on? What are some projects we should fund here? Um, and so we've seen uh, bike lanes come out of that, murals, um, other public way improvements, um, sidewalk enlargement, that sort of thing, um, to kind of focus uh, in on those community dollars. Um, but again, that's really just infrastructure-related improvements, although some of those dollars have been spent on public safety stuff, like cameras. Um, a few other people have proposed using it on um, private security patrols, although um, the ones that we have seen in the city have mostly been privately funded uh, so far. I remember years ago when I lived in Burton Terrace's ward, we lived on a street that it was a very short street. It should have been a quiet street, but it was 
um, cabs used to use it to get back downtown, and it was it was wild. And we wanted a stoplight, and we met with Bert Nateris, and he was like, nope, that costs $100,000. He said, we got to find a cheaper way. So what we ended up doing was it was a one-way street, and we redu- re- reversed the flow. So it wasn't a useful shortcut anymore, and that solved the problem. So, you know, they really do think about these things in terms of, of the cost in, involved. By the way, I didn't realize that a stoplight was like $100,000 to install yeah, at if you look at some of the budget breakdowns in these participatory budgeting, I mean, it, it, the expense is, is dramatic. I mean, a protected bike lane on a couple blocks can co- end up costing hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? So you yeah. don't realize how, especially as, you know, uh, we're kind of losing a lot of uh, short material shortages, right, and supply chain delays, it's only kind of gone up. But uh, $1.5 million per ward per year does not go very far. Yeah, shocking. Um, and finally, before I let you go, when I'm talking to these folks, I call them alder men, alder women, alder people, and my favorite, just alder. I just call them, you know, just alder. Um, what term do you use? I would say a mix, too. <laughs> I mean, you know, so the, the alder person, uh, it's interesting. So a couple of years ago, the state passed this measure changing uh, the terms of the gender neutral alder person in legislative materials, and that kind of sparked uh, wider usage of the term. Although um, the city does not recognize that officially, uh, and, many, and many city council members still stick to alderman, alderwoman. Um, there are some who have really bristled with that and said, I will never be called alderperson, I'm an alderman. Um, so really, I use it interchangeably, um, alderman, alderwoman. Um, alder is kind of something, uh, maybe a little inside baseball you would use talking to another reporter or talking um, you know, to uh, you know someone at City Hall, um, and then of course there is the infamous Alder creature. Although I won't say when I do it, don't you? <laughs> okay, that's a new one. I'll have to add to the add to the list. My problem is I use all these terms with the same person in the same interview. I can't seem to stick with one. It's like whatever comes out of my mouth, which is why I've been trying, and apparently, <laughs> to use the term alder, though I think it is kind of weird. But this way I don't have to, uh, I don't have to think about it beyond those two syllables. But, cause alder person just seems like such a mouthful. Um, yeah. And I don't want to be talking to a woman and called her an alder man because I don't like that kind of, you know, gendered titles. I don't know. It's a mess. Mm -hmm. But um, good luck. Election night. Quinn, it is a delight to talk to you. Uh, you, This is a great article. And uh, I'd like to have you back in the future. I'd love to, Joan. Thanks. And I know you'll be on, uh, on the air tomorrow. So good luck to you as well. Thank you. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. Uh, Quinn Myers, Block Club Chicago reporter. We're going to take a break. Come back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. Illinois controller Susanna Mendoza got uh, involved tangentially in the mayor's race about a week ago. <clears throat> When it came to light that her brother, a Chicago cop, had been uh, refused disability for for long COVID. It's a very involved situation. And um, Susana Mendoza really felt that City Hall was not doing its part. We asked her to come here and explain exactly what is going on and, and where the problems lie. Susanna, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Joan. How are you? 
I'm good. How are you? Well, I had a bad cold, but other than that, I'm hanging in there. Um, oh. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, I have a little boy, so he catches everything at school and loves to share <laughs> everything with mommy. Yes, the germ factories. I understand that. So uh, talk to me about your brother and his situation, Joaquin Mendoza. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Joan. Well, um, back in uh, February, on February 24th of uh, 2022, it had been a year ago, my brother was denied his duty disability benefits from the city of Chicago's um, uh, police officer pension fund. And at that time, we decided to go through the process. It was a horrible situation that he was denied. I mean, I don't think I've ever cried so much in my life other than when Tell my me dad. about his illness. So he caught COVID on November 11th of 2020. This is during the darkest days of the pandemic when the most amount of people were dying. Um, it was also during the presidential elections, to give you some context. And it was um, before, very importantly, before vaccines were available. We were all in those days praying for a vaccine to get on the market, right? Mm-hmm. So the entire police department, the first responders, right, police, fire, EMT, they were all um, ordered to continue to work. They were essential workers. You know, you can't arrest somebody over Zoom. And um, my brother had worked because of the presidential elections. They had canceled days off for almost the entire department, right? So these guys were working with no days off. He had worked for 17 days straight, extended hours to boot. And doing what he was asked to do, which was, you know, uh, serve and protect the people of the city. So um, on November 11th, which happened to be his birthday, I called him to wish him a happy birthday. And turns out he had a cough. And two days later, he was in the hospital and spent 72 days hospitalized. Oh, tragic. Yeah, he uh, literally was fighting for his life every day. And he had he lost his kidneys. Uh, and then suffered five strokes during the first 30 days. Like oh, my days God. Pretty much, yeah, within days of him being hospitalized. And then he had stro- about five, st- it was five strokes um, within the month. And, uh, yeah, it was horrible. And so his life will never, ever be the same. Um, he can't walk uh, without assistance. Like, he needs a cane and actually people to help hold on to most of the time. And um, he, because he loses his balance all the time because of the strokes. And his cognitive um, skills have been impaired, as has his memory, in a tremendous way. So, like, you'll have a conversation with him, and he sounds fine, and then he doesn't remember what you guys talked about. And so it's it's been, like, difficult to see my brother go through all of that. But I can tell you that one of the worst days for him was when he was denied his duty disability by the pension fund because it felt like an absolute betrayal to his many, many years, 22 years of dedicated service to the city. And my brother was the very first officer to go before the pension fund for duty disability related to COVID. And, uh, you know, I believe that they did not want to grant this benefit because they were probably worried about granting it to a whole bunch of people who might need it and opening up those floodgates. But that's no reason to deny an officer who legitimately has a... um, this terrible illness, he'll never get his kidneys back. His, his brain won't repair itself. Um, he's never going to be able to go back to work, which is the one thing he loved to do more than anything. Um, and to deny him was just absolutely inhumane, and, and it's cruel. What was the reason for the denial? I assume that to get a duty disability, that there's a, a list of illnesses or disabilities or criteria that they expect yeah. uh, to 
just yeah. was, I mean, it's, I can't imagine that with everything going on with him, with the loss of his kidney function, his impaired cognition, his strokes, I mean, I can't imagine he didn't tick a few boxes. Right, he ticked every box. The, the reality of it is that um, if you die as a police officer from COVID, so if you test positive for COVID, you died, the city will grant your family duty death benefits, and they will consider the fact that you died from COVID, they will give you the benefit of the doubt. It's called in legal terms a rebuttable presumption that you contracted COVID while in the performance of an act or acts of duty. In my brother's case, because he could not prove which specific act of duty is where he contracted COVID, um, they denied him. They said he had to prove exactly when and where, like what was the act that he was performing. The, the act of duty um, is a term that they... Which denied. is an impossible standard because, 100%. you know, I mean, I've had COVID three times and I can tell you where I think I got it, but I don't know for sure. Exactly. And remember back then, this is November of 2020. Um, we had no therapeutics. We didn't really understand the disease. People. Hey, we were disinfecting our cans when we brought them in from the grocery store. Yeah, well, they, they had no idea. And, and remember, most people were home, right? So we were at during those darkest days. The mayor had commercials out, right? Save lives, stay home. Um, and most people, even the like the judges, everybody was doing stuff by Zoom. But police officers, firemen, EMTs. They were the ones dealing with that public that did not stay home, and there was no contact tracing. There's just no way anybody could ever say this one detainee uh, in this one specific act is where I caught COVID, even though my brother had to deal with all kinds of detainees and all types of police. And they, um, you know, these were the days of the election. So you, my brother's um, unit where he worked in division in Area 5, they had like two to three times the amount of normal people because of no days off, and the heightened security because of the presidential election. So it was a recipe for disaster with these guys, and the city left them out to dry. And so, you know, we're not talking about a guy who wanted to raise. We're talking about a guy who lost his health care, who will forever have massive health care complication needs. And it's so wrong that because they didn't give him duty disability, which would have given him 75% of his salary and health care coverage, he now only gets 50% of his salary and no health care coverage, and he's not the only one. And so that's what the story is about. This is not just about my brother. My brother was the first, but he set the precedent. They set it through him for denying all the other officers. And there's a there's a, about 18 to 20 more who are in the pipeline. There have now been two officially denied. And, you know, under this impossible standard of proof, they couldn't, they couldn't approve anyone. So it's crazy that you actually have to die in the city to have access to benefits. And it makes no sense that that same rebuttable presumption that you get if you die is non-existent if you almost die, but don't die. Okay, explain explain this to me. The, um, the judge who agreed with the pension board that your brother Joaquin should not get these benefits in, in the ruling said that your brother failed to show the act leading to his disabling injury was mandatory. Is that's what you're talking about? You know, he needed to say, oh, on January 4th, I was with a guy who clearly had COVID, was, you know, tested positive for COVID, and that's where I got COVID. Is that what he means by that he failed to show that the act leading to his disabling injury was mandatory? So in other words, he couldn't prove that it happened while he was doing his police duty. 
No, the, well, the judge's ruling there is even more insulting. He's saying that my brother can't, number one, identify the specific act of duty that gave him COVID, but also that the act that gave him COVID was mandatory. And otherwise, in the ruling, it says that my brother in his job as a police, of, police officer carried no inherent additional or special risk than an average ordinary citizen. And that's absurd because average ordinary citizens were at home, right? Police officers it was absolutely mandatory that he go to work. He was never given the option of going to work or to working from home from a safer environment. Police officers naturally carry in inherently more, I would say, riskier job than you or I, right? This is like not up for discussion. This is non-debatable. It's a fact. Yet that judge made that comment, which I thought, oh, my goodness, how could he possibly say that? And, and on top of that, the judge also said in his findings that in the 10 days prior to my brother falling sick with COVID, no one in his division or his unit had had COVID. And that's a blatant lie because in the actual evidentiary documents that were submitted both to the hearing board and, of course, to the court, is a long list of all the police officers in Area 5 that were out sick with COVID at that time. So I don't know whose case this judge was reading, but I don't believe it was my brother's because the findings are as if he didn't even read the case and worse yet um, are contrary to the actual evidence that was sent to the judge. And I'd be happy to share with you. You can see the list of all the officers that were out sick with COVID. So that, that is at that point, um, Joan, where I was like, oh, my God, this is never going to get resolved in the courts. Uh, they're never going to do the right thing. And I have to take action into my own hands. Right. And so um, that is this just happened on January 31st, I believe. And we had a, a month in which we had to file our motion to appeal to the appellate court, which we did on Tuesday. This is like for the timing for all the people out there who think that I did this to sink Mayor Lightfoot. Number one, let me just say that I don't need to help her with that. I think she's doing a good enough job on her own. But number two, mm. the calendar is the calendar. And the judge ruled against my brother um, this last month. So it had been January 31st. We have 30 days. We filed it on Tuesday because Monday was a holiday. And by the way, the legislative calendar is the other calendar that I have to abide by. Because once I realized that I have to change the law, I called Speaker Welch and I spoke about this issue. And, you know, I was bawling my eyes out because it's very, very sad when I start thinking about my brother and everything he's been through and continues to go through. And being, you know, turned down again by this judge who I don't even feel read the case. Uh, Thaddeus Wilson is his name. Um and so I spoke with Speaker Welch, and he showed empathy and grace. And he said, all right, let's do this. Let's, we can do it together. Let's fix it. But the calendar, the deadline for getting everything in so that we can hear it in this legislative session was last Friday. So we filed our bill on Friday. We announced that this bill was just filed um, uh, with the legislature on Friday, and we announced it on Tuesday. And, you know, I'm moving forward. And, yeah, it, it, it did happen to happen um, during the last week of the election, but I'm not going to postpone doing what I need to do legislatively and talk about why this is important to do because of someone's election. You know, good work doesn't stop because of an election, and I'm going to move forward with it and talk about it as much as I can when people are interested in helping these officers because my brother said that if he had to get sick all over again, to help the rest of the officers that are coming behind him, that he would do it again. It would be worth it because maybe he had to be the test case because he's the only one who has a sister who knows how to navigate this stuff, who has a platform to talk mm -hmm. about this, that people actually show up and 
and want to hear about what's going on in the city that we love. This type of stuff should never be happening in the city that we love. Uh, Susanna, we uh, we need to take a break. I'm talking to controller Susanna Mendoza, who's telling us the horror story of what her brother, a Chicago cop, who is uh, suffering from awful post-COVID effects and yet was uh, denied full disability. Uh, we are going to continue this discussion right after a break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. When Illinois controller Susanna Mendoza's brother, Joaquin, got COVID in the days before there was a vaccine. And as a Chicago cop, he was required to work day in and day out. He lost kidney function. He had strokes. He now has trouble with cognition and he has trouble walking. And yet he if he had died, his uh, covid would be enough to give him that full disability death benefit. But he didn't die. And um, the board, the pension board that could decide to give him free health care and 75 percent of his salary said no. And I know that, you know, you say this is separate from the mayor, but let's face it. Three of the people on the pension board who voted against your brother were Mayor Lori Lightfoot appointees to that board. Do you see some kind of a connection there? Oh, 100%. Listen, I hold her accountable. She she chooses to pretend that she's the victim and that I'm just playing politics with her. But I can assure you that, you know, the facts are the facts. And the facts are that my brother's never going to get his kidneys back. He sacrificed them for the city. He's never going to get his brain fully repaired. He gave that up for this city, too. And when he needed the city and the mayor's trustees to do the right thing by him and all the other officers that are coming after that are within that same period of time, um, the city betrayed him, and it's that simple. She cannot appoint people to a board that hate the police or that are going to take that type of a position towards, you know, victim officers, because that's where they, they are. They fell victim to this terrible virus. Uh, but as I said, you know, worse, I don't want to say worse, because physically, of course, my brother will never be the same. But like uh, her not having his back and the back of these other officers was essentially equivalent to her stabbing him in the back and twisting it into his heart because he loved the city. I love the city. And I never believed that our city would do what they did, betray them in this way. And, you know, the sad part here, um, Joan, is that my brother, Joaquin, from the get-go said, I'll never get approved because the city hates us. And I kept trying to explain to him that, no, the city does not hate you guys. Um, That's not the case. Please don't feel that way. Um, And he's like, well, the city hates us. The mayor hates us. And I said, no, she doesn't. She doesn't look at you guys either. And this, you're like the poster child for who is deserving of this benefit that, by the way, he's paid into as a police officer into his pension benefit, right? And so imagine my shock and dismay, like horror, frankly, when I, I sat before that board listening and they come back with a no vote. I really was like, oh, my gosh, he's right. Now, I do try to clarify with my brother, and I did with Officer Cordova, Nestad the other day that I don't believe the city hates him. Uh, I think the city appreciates his efforts as a police officer and his sacrifice and hers for the most part, right? I mean, you're always going to have your group of people that no matter what police officers do, they've turned them into villains. But I believe that most people with a heart look at a sacrifice from an officer and want to help. And so I said, the city is not the one who failed you here. This administration failed you. 
and the people that they handpicked, that Lori Lightfoot handpicked to be on that board. And then let me take it one step further, because not only was did her appointees vote against my brother, but her number one appointee, who happens to be her senior counsel and her risk assessment officer, right? This handpicked person, Mayor Lightfoot, who was her policy advisor during her campaign, and then now turns out was her senior counsel and her current risk assessment officer. His name is um, Stephen Scarden. This individual even voted to deny my brother ordinary benefits, Joan. So the difference is disability would give disability benefits, duty disability would give my brother 75% of his salary plus health care. And ordinary disability would give my brother 50% and no health care. But it's an acknowledgement that he's disabled from the job. This individual was the only one of all the trustees that voted not even to grant my brother ordinary disability. He voted against that too. So in other words, doesn't even believe my brother's disabled when it is medical fact that he lost both his kidneys, that he requires three days of dialysis a week for the rest of his shortened life expectancy, and that he suffered five strokes. Their pension fund doctor, the doctor that they hired to do the evaluation of my brother, made it crystal clear that, yes, he's permanently disabled, and yes, he most likely did not contracted COVID while in the performance of his job. Yet this guy who's a lawyer, not a doctor, but he's Mayor Lightfoot's key person on that board, voted to not even grant the most basic disability. He would have left him with nothing if it was up to him. And I think that's just a travesty and he has to be called out for it. And that, that's why I hold Mayor Lightfoot accountable because those are her people. And I don't believe for one second that she did not give uh, uh, you know, she didn't set the tone for what the position of the board is going to be. I've sat on pension boards before on the Fireman's Annuity Pension Fund and the city trustees. I was not one of them, but I knew that those city trustees were always like, well, this is the mayor's position on this, and this is how we have to vote. So for all of a sudden for her to say that she has no input, I just don't believe it. And now that she does know what her board did, even if she didn't have any input, let's give her that she's not lying about there being a firewall between her and the pension fund. They did a travesty, and it is her responsibility to take leadership on that and change that moving forward, and she should have been the first person saying that she will wholeheartedly support our legislative efforts to correct this wrong, but she hasn't even done that. She says she, she is no one to critique the pension fund's decision, and I think, of course you are. You're the mayor, and that's what leadership is all about, but you choose not to lead. And you choose to pass the buck on to someone else and say, it's not my fault. Well, again, you know, I do hold her responsible. And I think that that's what we're supposed to do of our elected leaders when they're the ones that are picking the people who are making these decisions. Tell me about the conversation you had with her when you ran into her at the Hispanic American Construction Industry Association banquet. That was like a uh, a year ago, March. Well, it, it wasn't fun. I was... Um, this was soon after the decision, the original decision came down in February where I told you, you know, I, I was very, very just taken aback and heartbroken. And so I hadn't seen her and that was the first event where I saw her. She came up to me very nice, you know, and it's like, Hey, you know, put that phone down and give me a hug. And so I looked at her and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is the mayor who was the last person on earth I wanted to see. Um, and so I was less than kind and I told her to get out of my face and, uh, very clear and direct way and um, not suitable for audiences. And um, she was, of course, like, what's what's happening? Why are you 
what's wrong. And I told her, you know, in no uncertain terms, I told her very clearly. Now, she says that I was very extremely emotional. And you know what, Joan? I was, because that's my brother who almost died serving this city, who was betrayed by this mayor and her handpicked appointee. So you better believe I was emotional, number one, because I have a heart. And number two, because it would make you sad. I guarantee you if it was your brother, you'd be crying too. Because I just could not believe that this had been done. So I told her, like, I may have been very emotional, but I was also very cogent and thought, right? I knew exactly what I said to her, and I promise you that she remembers what I said to her. She was asked if um, she had ever offered to help, and she says, well, that's not my recollection. I don't recall. That's a lawyer speak for it. I know exactly what happened, and I don't want to talk about it, okay? But that conversation that she and I had, I made it clear to her that the quote that I gave you just a second ago about her not having my brother's back and the back of the other officers and instead, um, you know, stabbing him in the back and twisting into his heart and that she did the same to me because of my love for the city and never expecting this type of, of uh, response for our officers. Those are the things I told her. And I told her that I could never forgive her for this. That, and she said to me, well, well, you know, can I, can I fix it? And I said, no, you can't fix it. It's done. Your board made a ruling and that ruling stands. And then she told me, why didn't I call her? And I said, what? And so, yeah, she essentially asked, why didn't I call her? And I told her that it's not appropriate for me to call her, that I never wanted a special favor for my brother. I just wanted justice for him and every other officer like him. And, um, you know, again, there's nothing she could do. That hit my brother's illness spoke for itself. The merits of his case were crystal clear. And I also did tell her, about that trustee, Steve Scarden, who even voted to deny my brother the most basic of of um, financial help, right? The one that gave him no health insurance and only gave him 50%. So I said, these are the people that you handpicked to support our officers. My brother told me that you hated the, the officers, that the city uh, fund would never support them because you guys hate them. And I told him that wouldn't, that's not true, but you made me a liar to my own brother. So this is essentially the gist of that conversation. Um, so obviously it didn't end well for her. I was not happy to have that interaction with her, but it was necessary to have it. She needed to know what was happening. And so for her to come out and hold a press conference last week saying that she doesn't know the facts of the case, yet she's still going to support the board. Let me just tell you, I had a very, very uh, intense conversation with this mayor. And if she didn't take five minutes to read my brother's file after that, not so she could fix it, but just so that this could never, ever happen again in our city, then shame on her even more so. How could she have, well, I, I don't know the facts, but I'm still going to support the board. It just goes to show how little she even cared about the fact that I did get emotional over something that was so personal. I would have cared enough to look into it, especially when she said she to give her the opportunity to fix it. I told her she couldn't fix it, but I would have still taken a look at the file, at least so I know what my appointees are doing if I supposedly am not trying to influence their behavior, right? So clear to me that she didn't care. Her board didn't care. And um, and that's unfortunate for the officers, but thankfully I care. Thankfully Speaker Welch cares. Thankfully um, Representative Jay Hoffman and Senator Bill, um, um, Bill Cunningham care. And we're going to lead this effort legislatively uh, where the city has failed our officers. Is there uh, legislation that is written right now? Yes, there is House Bill 3162, um, and Senator Cunningham will be picking that up in the Senate. 
Um, and I'm looking forward to getting it done, this legislative session. And this legislation would do something very simple. It would amend the current law that says that if a police officer dies from COVID between March 9th, which is when the executive order first hit and the lockdown happened, through June 30th of 2021, which was the date once um, vaccines had finally become available and everyone had had the opportunity to get their vaccine and have their two-week uh, incubation period, right, where it, like they tell you to take it and you're good two weeks later. Mm-hmm. Um, that was uh, June 30th of 2021. Um, by that point, everybody should have been able, who wanted to get a vaccine, to get one and be fully vaccinated from that first wave. Um, anyone who gets sick within that period of time, just the way the current law says, if you die within that period of time from COVID, you will be given a rebuttable presumption that you contracted it while in the performance of an act of duty. The same will apply now if you become disabled because of COVID. As a policeman, fireman, EMT, um, you will be given that same rebuttable presumption that you get if you die, uh, if you don't die. And it's really that simple. Uh, the, I think that the precedent that was set with the, the dead officers is more than enough justification for the board to have done the right thing from the beginning. Uh, they chose not to, not just on my brother, but again on Officer Cordova Nestad. Um, and the other guys have been afraid to go before the board because they're pretty confident they'll be denied as well. So I don't want any officer having to spend thousands of dollars the way my brother has had to do trying to go through a court system, especially if they end up with a judge like Thaddeus Wilson who doesn't even read file um, and denies them. And then they have to continue another 18 months or so for the next uh, attempt to, to have an appeal on, on this case. And so it's thousands of dollars, lost time. And in the meantime, these officers are not getting 75% of their benefits and they're getting no health care. And in my brother's case and in Officer Cordova Nested's case, they have chronic, debilitating, life-altering health care needs. And it is just so cruel to not give them that help. Pay them half their salary and tell them that they have to spend, you know, over $1,000 a month on health care is just an an extra spit in the eye. So um, that's what we're trying to avoid. And if this bill passes, or better yet, when it passes, we'll make it retroactive to um, cover the officers who've already been denied by the board and just do the right thing by them. House Bill 3162, Susana Mendoza, we will keep an eye on it and give our listeners regular updates. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing this terrible story. But um, hopefully with this legislation, uh, we'll get this fixed. Thank you again for being here. Yeah. Hey, Joan, and one more thing, because this is always super depressing to talk about, but let's end <laughs> on a high note. How's that? Good. So um, we got our seventh credit upgrade last week. Yeah, I read about that. Isn't that awesome? That's great. Congratulations. Your show for that <laughs> upgrade. This is really good news for taxpayers. And, you know, just so that they understand whenever there's a credit upgrade, that means that uh, whenever the state has to do things like uh, borrow money for roads and bridges or capital construction projects, that it's going to cost us less money to do so, which means we're saving taxpayer money. So always thrilled. I told you before I didn't like the number six, so we were shooting for number seven. We got it, and now I'm I'm looking for lucky number eight and number nine, all right? (laughs) Sounds good. Thank you so much. Um, We're going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more after this. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. 
We might have mentioned uh, that there is an election tomorrow. Uh, I think we did. If I if I forgot to mention it, please allow me to inform you right now. Tomorrow is the day, the last day to go to the polls if you live in the city of Chicago, though there are uh, suburban races, Lake County races uh, that we are going to talk a tiny little bit about later today. <clears throat> but there are... Not only nine candidates running to be the next mayor of Chicago, uh, there are 50 wards. Some of those older people are running unopposed, but um, altogether, I believe there are 175 candidates running in various combinations for various seats, which was why when my good friend, Justin Kaufman in Axios Chicago put together a voter guide to all 50 wards. I thought, yeah, yep, we need to talk to Justin so that tomorrow night when we're doing our election special 7 to 10, we know which of these wards that at least Justin thinks that we really have to take a look at tomorrow night. Mr. Kaufman, uh, welcome back to the program. Hi, Joan. We're getting Let's just do a speed round, all fifty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I was looking at this and I was going, "Is there a chance we could mention all 50? Uh But I think the I the bottom line on that that is uh, is is probably is probably no. Um, but there are yeah. so many really interesting races. Um, WCPT Studio is located in the forty fifth ward, so of course everybody is paying attention to that. Uh, Jim Gardner, um, who, what, how is it you describe him? Something like the most controversial uh, alder person in the city council. Uh, yeah, yeah, think. Uh, and he's really been uh, a lightning rod. A lot of people. I talked to Megan Mathias. I talked to James uh, Saw, who's uh, running against him. Um, he has, he's, he's ticked some people off, Justin. He has. I mean, now again, this is all on a redistricted map. That's the first place that we start, right? You remember that because of the census, the the city of Chicago, uh, or at least city council, redistricted their maps. So we had this fight over last summer where there were different uh, factions of city council that were trying to control the map. So the 45th ward will change a little bit from what we've known the 45th, and this is actually something that's going to help. Jim Gardner. So Alderperson Gardner has been uh, is his first term. He replaced John Arena, who was a progressive alderman from Jefferson Park, uh, was a big part of the, the early days of that progressive caucus. Uh, he beat him in a very narrow uh, election in 2019. During the last four years, Alderperson Gardner has had investigations, uh, FBI investigations into uh, pay to play. He's had investigations into uh, uh, abusive allegations when it comes to you know yelling and screaming at people. And uh, there was even just in this campaign, there was some some question about whether or not he was shaking down people who were trying to get on the ballot. There's a lot that that Alderperson Gardner has kind of you know been accused of doing, uh, but he is the incumbent there, and he. To his advantage, the 45th Ward has expanded to include, I think it's um, uh, Edgebrook, the neighborhood of Edgebrook, and also, I, I believe, Wildwood. Those are uh, very conservative parts of Chicago, Northwest Side, and they now join the 45th Ward. And that's going to help him because Jim Gardner is a former firefighter, and Jim Gardner has uh, has, has worked uh, as a first responder, and he represents first responders. And that area up in the 45th is where a lot of them live. So you're going to see a very interesting 
there are six candidates uh, vying for this position, and if uh, Alder Person Gardner can't get to that runoff spot of 50%, he might have trouble in the runoff. I know that uh, Marianne Ahern did a report a couple nights ago after talking to the Board of Elections, and uh, she said that, you know, apparently there's just been a deluge of mail-in ballots and, well, early voting as well, but certainly mail-in ballots. And you and I, from uh, covering these kind of election nights before, you know, the more <laughs> mail-in ballots, sometimes the longer it takes to get a result. Uh, she, Marianne Ahern, was speculating that, well, we probably will see Paul Vallis definitely claim a runoff spot. Who he is going to be running against might not be decided for a couple of weeks. Do you see the same thing happening in any of these aldermanic races? Yes. Well, absolutely. And when you look at the uh, top uh, say top 10 wards that have had uh, early early voting and vote by mail uh, uh, record setting day uh, weeks here, I mean, you're talking about some of the areas uh, just off the top of my head, knowing that this is going to be in our, our newsletter tomorrow. The 19th ward, it's an, the number one. It's in Mount Greenwood, Beverly, they're the number one uh, ward when it comes to early and mail and votes counted. Right. Then you've got the 41st ward. Then you've got the 45th ward. You've got the 46th ward, Uptown, Lakeview, 38th ward, Dunning. These are very uh, these are very white wards in Chicago. And what you're seeing is just a, a numbers. I mean, record setting because there was no big sort of mail in voting push before the pandemic. And that was the last time we had one of these elections. So, you know, I, I think in, in Beverly, it's over 10,000 votes already that have come in just for, um, you know, mail-in and early voting. So uh, talking to the Board of Elections, their, their point is to say, listen, we got to start, you know, these numbers are going to get bigger and bigger as we get closer to the election, because as long as it's postmarked by Election Day, it can be counted. And when you're talking about some of these smaller races, when you're talking about a six candidates uh, trying to force an incumbent to not get 50 percent to go into a runoff, every vote literally counts. Right? Uh-huh. You, this is not a midterm where you're talking about that or a presidential election where you're 30,000, 50,000, 75,000 you know, vote dumps. This will be hundreds. You know, when you're talking about yeah. 100 yeah. might make the difference. So when you're there is a chance that, you know, they always they always say this. The boards of elections, whether it's Illinois, Chicago, others will always say, hey, hold your horses. We don't know what's going to happen. There may not be results because we've got to count all these things we don't know. This time I would listen because we're talking about granular level of votes. And because of that, it could make the difference between whether a, a, a candidate gets into the runoff or doesn't. Yes. Were you surprised at all? that Ed Burke chose not to run this time? I know on the face of it, if you just look at the facts, it seems absurd that he might. But you and I know that, you know, absurd doesn't really enter into it when uh, when somebody who's been in city council for, you know, decades and decades and is facing indictment. OK, yeah, but it's Chicago. We can overlook that stuff sometimes. <laughs> well, I exactly. You make a really great point, because you would think just on the surface that he's under indictment. He's uh, getting up there in age. He's done this. He wants to, you know, focus on his legal case. But we do know it's Alderman and Ed Burke. <laughs> been around for a long time. He's the the dean of the of of city council. The one thing that's not pointed out, we pointed it out in the piece, is that during the redistricting, uh, Ed Burke lost a big part of of his ward, which is called Garfield Ridge. It's a neighborhood in the 14th ward. The 14th ward is kind of on the southwest side. Just. Uh, uh, kind of around Midway Airport, a little, little bit less of there. But that that little spot, Garfield Ridge, was like that's that's Ed Burke's spot. That's where city workers live. <laughs> that's the that's, sweet that's, spot. That's the that's Ed Burke's sweet spot. That was removed from the 14th Ward. I forgot it was moved to 
I want to say the 23rd. Um, I, I can't right off the top of my head. That's, that's one of the wards nearby. So he knew right from the get-go that it wasn't a given that he was going to be reelected. And mm-hmm. so not unlike, you know, other candidates who are using data points and, and other instead of just sort of the, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> the elbow grease to get out and go door to door. You know, the writing's on the wall for Alderperson Burke, who recognized that the sort of home base of his ward that he's had for so many years was no longer there. And he'd be playing to a different constituency. That's a lot harder to do when you're under indictment. Yeah. Yeah, even in Chicago. Um, Justin Kaufman writes for Axios Chicago. He wrote a voter's guide to all 50 wards coming up in uh, the election tomorrow. We're going to take a break and we're going to talk more aldermanic politics with him right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. Justin Kaufman and Monica Eng write Axios Chicago. And Justin put together a voter guide for all 50 wards in uh, Chicago politics. Uh, I have more questions, Justin. Nicole Lee, appointed by the mayor, uh, but facing challengers. How do you see that working out? Uh, she, she was the first ever uh, Asian-American uh, alder person uh, you know, put in, appointed by the mayor in uh, March, I think it was, when uh, Patrick Daly-Thompson was convicted of, I think it was bank fraud or what they're calling it, corruption. Um, so she is a uh, an incumbent. I mean, it's not like she was just put in, you know, three or four months. She is, she's had a good year here to get herself organized, but she is facing six other candidates because this is an area that is Bridgeport and Chinatown. Again, redistricted, but this is going to be your area of Armour Square, Bridgeport, Chinatown, uh, sort of mid-south side of Chicago. That used to be the, uh, the the home of the 11th Ward Democrats, you're talking about Richard M. Daley, you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, just a very powerful kind of uh, Chicago machine Democrats. Uh, and, but, you know, Nicole Lee is somebody who got the rare endorsement of former Mayor Richard M. Daley. He didn't endorse anybody else in any other race, did he? I know. I think I think that that's that bodes well for her in the sense that she is uh, getting someone who that area, especially at Bridgeport, you know, considers the royalty to come out and who does not participate usually in municipal election endorsements. We've seen this. I mean, he stayed away from Rahm Emanuel and didn't really get into even <laughs> endorsing mm-hmm. him in 2019. But uh, this case, he has the rare, she has the rare endorsement of Mayor Richard M. Daly. We'll see if that has any sway in Bridgeport, Chinatown, that area. So she's, she's got some, some candidates that are lining up against her, and they've been lining up since she got appointed. So it's a good chance it does go to a runoff, but, uh, but that, when you're talking about endorsements from, from big names like Daly, you never know what could happen. Yeah. And in the 15th Ward, uh, Ray Lopez, as yeah. you report, uh, he did throw his hat in the ring to run for mayor, and then he took his hat back out of the ring uh, and decided that he was going to stick with life as an alder person. Do you think that's why he's facing challengers, because um, because he made that um, decision to maybe leave that seat? He, uh, you know, lo- yeah, of course, uh, alder person Lopez early on, remember this, just early on last year said he's running for mayor. He had the yard signs, everything ready to go. He's a, a, a critic and opponent of Mayor Lightfoot. But as as more candidates got in, including Paul Vallis and others that might, uh, miss, you know, like, like compete for what he was going for, he's really going for the uh, back the blue law and order uh, vote. You know, I think he, he wisely 
decided that he didn't want to run for mayor and he got back into the uh, into politics. He's popular in the back of the yards neighborhood. You know, he's been there for a little bit and he's somebody who I think, you know, you're right. I think that there have been, there's, I think he's got two challengers there, including um, former chief of staff to uh, 33rd Ward Alderperson Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez. But I, you know, at the end of the day, that's a name that's, that, you know, people know in that ward. He's been there. And obviously by raising his profile, by announcing he was running for mayor and then rescinding that announcement, <laughs> it can't hurt mm-hmm. uh, for all the media coverage he got, you know, with the, with the name Lopez on the crawling on your screen <laughs> for a couple months <laughs> as he was uh, talking about the different issues Chicago's facing. OK, enough of my questions. What do you think are the most interesting races? Right. This is, I, I don't know. This to me, Joni, you know, this is sort of this is political Christmas for me. I love this. <laughs> this Chicago mayoral race and the municipal election is the best. And I think tomorrow night you're going to see if, if you're if you're politically inclined and you know where there might be a election night party. I recommend going because you get to see all the people that come together. They're usually these parties are they're starting to release now where these parties are going to be. And and you've got, you know, people who are in every tavern in their ward and in every downtown ball room or whatever it might be, Chicago just lights up on a, on a Tuesday in February for these elections. I, I think that you've got some really interesting uh, races. I think up on the north side of Chicago, all of the lakefront liberals there that, that used to just be the, you know, the, the, the stalwarts of Chicago politics are, are not running again. I think it's, it's amazing to me to think all the way from the 48th Ward, Harry Osterman, to, uh, you know, to James Kaffelman in the 46th, to Tom Tunney. In the 44th, to you know, Michelle Smith stepped down earlier in Lincoln Park in the 43rd. Those are all lakefront wards, and I think that you're going to see a changing of the guard when it comes to what to expect from that crew of older people who have been almost a voting block upon themselves for the last couple of years and were all supporters of uh, Rob Emanuel to some extent, you know, and and had their battles with Lori Lightfoot. It'll be interesting to see what kind of all their person those wards want do they want to go law and order because we've seen like like an east lakeview for instance uh an area that uh, has has had public safety concerns high profile public safety concerns in the last couple of years are they going to go with someone who's going to be more uh public safety oriented are they going to go with a progressive who's going to you know come in there and do some to, who never had any success against uh, other candidates i think in the 44th ward which i think is probably the most chicago story of all of them that's tom tunney's ward Tom Tunney, uh, you know, a longtime powerful alder person, you know, shocked the world in what, November, December. And he said he was not running again. They was thinking maybe he was going to run for mayor. But what I think is fascinating about that is he waited so long that nobody else had stepped up to run against him because he had been an incumbent for so many years, John. It was like, what's the point? Oh, yeah. And, and so beloved. People, right. And people weren't able to mobilize in time to actually challenge. So he essentially, I don't know, you know, the question will be like, did he, did he tip early saying, I'm not going to run? And he told his longtime chief of staff or, or, or uh, you know, handpicked successor Bennett Lawson there. Uh, he's the only candidate running. They were successful in bumping everybody else off the ballot. He's it. So Tom Tunney's assistant or, or a longtime staffer is going to take over for Tom Tunney in the 44th. That to me, I mean, it's not dirty politics. It's just, I guess you would say it's, Strategic. Strategic politics that there was no challenge whatsoever for anyone because they thought the incumbent was staying. So that's, I love that. That's, that's very Chicago. That's very, <laughs> the old uh, Chicago machine stuff. So uh, the 44th and all those. And then the same with the lakefront liberals on the south side. 
fourth ward, uh, and fifth ward. I mean, fifth ward was Leslie Harrison's uh, champ for so long. She's been there for for a long time. She's not running again. Uh, fourth ward, Sophia King is running for mayor, so there's going to be an entirely new uh, alder person there. And just all up and down the lake talking about different representation. And it's a great moment for Chicago to be like, see how the city is reshaped after this election. Well, a lot of people have been speculating. I don't know that I agree with this, but I've read a lot of speculation that somehow this next city council is going to be a lot more progressive a city council than we've seen before. Do you get that feel? I, you know, it's hard to say because the, the Democrat socialists who, who just came in a wave in 2019, all, uh, those those uh, older people really kind of stunned the political world. Uh, young, fresh faces, Andre Vasquez in the 40th, uh, and, and you know progressives like uh, Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez in the 33rd, and even uh, Daniel Spada in the first. There are there there's interesting challenges there. I think that that those those older people who have been successful are also facing more moderate competition, and and you're seeing some some moderate headways at least to see i don't know if it's necessarily going to win but might force a runoff in some of those wards that doesn't necessarily bode well for new progressives and maybe progressives who are running for the first time uh who are trying to get footholds in areas that they weren't in before that doesn't say it won't happen you know i think chicago has a long history of of you know you think of the fifth ward and and some of the, the lakefront wards have been progressive in the past, so I don't say it won't, but I don't know if it's a slam dunk that uh, progressives running on this ballot are, are necessarily going to win. The overwhel- I mean, you've seen it over and over and over in these polls, but the overwhelming you know, survey, exit polling and whatever from, the, from Chicago voters is that they're voting, it's almost like a single issue, and it's public safety. And whether that's accurate, whether that's just a narrative, whether that's, you know, what's going on around us in the city of Chicago, that is how people are feeling. And when that happens, you usually do see candidates, not unlike Paul Vallis and others, poll well. And they may not be progressives. They may be more moderate. They may be more conservative. And I think that's what you're seeing here, at least in the polling. doesn't mean that's what's going to happen tomorrow, but that's why you see more uh, of the, the, the kind of Paul Vallis candidates uh you know, always at the top of these polling is because they're right. He's running pretty much out of one. Topic. <laughs> He's a one topic candidate, which is crime, crime, public safety and crime. So, you know, if that's playing out in wards as well, you may you may see that 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 kind of candidate uh, emerges as the front runners as we kind of sort out the, the vote tomorrow night. Where are you going to be? I don't know. I don't. I want <laughs> all of it. Right. <laughs> I feel I feel I, I this morning I feel like I've got it all up on my on my wall like a little piece of the paper. It looks like I'm doing a murder investigation. I've got all these like where am I going <laughs> some time on a you know like got to go over and see this candidate. I want to see what the alderman's doing in this can. So I don't know. I feel like I've got to write a ton tomorrow night for results and and for Axios and for the newsletter in the morning. But I'm definitely going to get out. I, I'm excited to to see the city on on Tuesday night election night in Chicago. It's uh, it's it's going to be great. Justin, thank you so much for being here. And oh, I have to tell you, um, yes, my Christmas tree is still up now. We're going um, uh, we're coming up on three and a half years now. Um, Yep. Just had to replace a bunch of bulbs, but that's okay. I bow down to you. I I, I get sweaty when we get to to January 15th. (laughs) I bow down to you. The three three plus years you've had that Christmas tree up. I you are yep. you are a true believer. 
Thank you. Yes, the Christmas spirit is with me year-round, or maybe I would just like it to be. Justin Kaufman, Axios Chicago, you should read it. We're going to take a break, be back with uh, Chewy Garcia right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I mentioned there are going to be people in the suburbs going to the polls. Well, if they haven't voted early, they will be going to the polls tomorrow. There are uh, races in Lake County. There are school board races all over the suburbs. And one of those suburbs that has uh, some seats to vote on for the school board is in Palatine, uh, District 211. And one of the people uh, running to get a school board seat is Aiden Brands, who joins us now to talk about this race. Aiden, welcome to the show. Hi, Joan. Thanks for inviting me on. Glad to be here. Now, Aiden, uh, your candidacy has gotten a little bit of attention because of your age. Tell us how old you are and why you decided to run. I'm years old, and I decided to run because I graduated from Palatine High School last year. And it really is just a passion of mine to serve the community. And I believe that I have the backbone to fight back against a lot of these extremists that are plaguing our school boards. And I'm really passionate, and I just want to do what's best for my community that I've lived in my whole life. Have you been out talking to voters when you've been campaigning? Yeah, I, uh, I've been knocking on doors. I've been going to a lot of events lately. I've been. Are people my, surprised uh, to see you when they when they open the door? Someone uh, so so young, so fresh. I yes, I get like just this shocked look on a lot of people. <laughs> they see me, or I tell them my age. They're like, "You're only 19." It yeah, it does surprise a lot of people, but I think it also impresses them a lot. And what it, what specifically do you want to accomplish if you are elected to the school board? Well, there's a few things I want to accomplish. So one of the big things that's happening with school boards all over the country is they're trying to ban books. And I myself, I'm an author. I've written four books that are sold all over the country in stores like Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Half Price Books. And I know the importance of books and how people and students can connect to characters. And it really frustrates me when people go to these board meetings and we have candidates who just don't agree with that. And I feel like sometimes these people are trying to make our school boards like Florida. And that's what has just that's something that's been bothering me lately. Another thing that I really care about is accessible mental health. I was a student, and I saw that they didn't always have enough counselors for students, and you had to always make an appointment, and that's just not how mental health works. So increasing our social staff to have more counselors talk to students, and another thing I'm really passionate about in this whole race is just the financial aspect of everything. I People, they say I'm young and I don't know anything about the finances, but I do. And I understand everything that's happening. So those are just some some of the things that are on my radar with this election. 
Have you been out trying to uh, raise funds for things like yard signs and whatnot? We uh, we are. We we haven't raised a whole lot of money, but we just started accepting donations about a week ago, and we're slowly getting the word out there, and we're getting some money, and we're going to order the signs either tonight or tomorrow. For those of my listeners who aren't familiar with the Palatine area, tell us about the community. The community is great. There's a lot of there's a lot of great people in this town. Um, it's a big district. Uh, district D to 11 covers a few towns, Palatine, Schaumburg, Inverness, Hoffman Estates, Rolling Meadows. I think the entire district, like overall, is like 90 miles long. Um, it's a huge district, but there's a lot of good people in it. And of course, there's obviously some negative people who have slammed the, their doors on my face, but we have a lot of positivity out here, and I'm just running because I want to keep that positivity going. Well, you have um, a, a, a long uh, career ahead of you. At uh, If you're running for office at the age of 19, what? Um, how do you see your political life unfolding? Uh, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about it. My biggest thing I just want to do what's best for people. So I don't have an exact answer now. Only time will tell, but I wouldn't be surprised if I did run for something bigger like state rep or whatever it may be. Well, uh, if this works out, you will have a great, a great job in the short term. If it doesn't work out, what are your plans? Are you thinking of college? So I actually am attending a community college right now at a Harper College. It's a great school, a lot of great people there. So I'll just continue to learn there and go to a university once I'm done with the two years. Um, but no matter what winter moves, I still am going to go to school. When you knock on doors and you tell people that you're running for school board and they say, well, well, why? What is what is your pitch to them? I just tell them, look, I have the energy and I have the passion and I have the best knowledge of our school because I was just in there. And usually when I just say something like that, they understand and they're like, yeah, I feel like our school board should have a student representative seat and someone who actually understands the current problems happening within the schools. Um, Well, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, is there a campaign website that you have where if somebody wants to read more about you, they can get more information? So we have a lot of social medias, Aiden Brands for D211. We have a Facebook, a Twitter, an Instagram, and even a TikTok, which people are surprised when I tell them <laughs> I have a TikTok. Uh, well, yeah, we website, but we have a lot of social media where we post every single day with voter info and all that good stuff. Yeah, um, my generation, when we think promoting a campaign, TikTok would not be something that jumps to the to the front of our brains. But I do know that at least one a mayoral candidate, uh, Jamal Green, has uh, utilized TikTok. And I believe there's also a, a TikTok account out there 
um, not run by the campaign, but in support of uh, mayoral candidate Chewy Garcia. So I guess uh, I guess it's uh, the wave of the future. And uh, people like me who are used to going to uh, one dedicated website are going to have to be a little bit more um, spend a little bit more time finding some of these other sites where candidates are. Uh, Aiden, yeah. good luck to you. I think that what you're doing is amazing, and I, I wish you the best. And um, when you get that school board seat, we'll talk again about your um, your goals for it. Well, thank you so much, Joan, for having me on. And I've been listening to the show all day. It's a really good show. I, Susanna Mendoza's story was really heartbreaking to listen to. So I'm going to keep listening. Well, thank you. Maybe you can publicize it on your TikTok. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Thanks. God, I sound like an old person. Thanks, Aiden. Thank you. Aiden Brands is running for the school board in District 211. That's in Palatine. Uh, if you are so inclined and live there and see his name on the ballot, now you know who he is. Aiden, thank you again for being here. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. You too. We are going to take a break. We are going to be back with much more, including uh, mayoral candidate Chewy Garcia, when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Tomorrow is the last day to vote. If you live in the city of Chicago, there are nine people who would like to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. One of those is Congressman Jesus Chewy Garcia, who joins us now. Congressman Garcia, thank you for being here. So glad to join you uh, day before Election Day, Joan. I know. We are up against the wire. What can a candidate accomplish in, in this last basically 24 hours? Well, um, in uh, interviews that I've campaigned uh, all over the city on the south side, the southeast side, on the north side earlier this morning, yesterday at uh, black churches on the west and south side, you get your message across. And what I am telling people is for Chicago to come together, it really needs someone with experience, with relationships, the ability to bring people together. It's my sense that Chicagoans in every neighborhood really want to come together, return to a new sense of normalcy, and rebuild the city, but equitably, because if not, bad things will happen coming down the line. So I think that's the essential message that I am telling people wherever I go across Chicago. You said uh, you were quoted as saying that if you you felt that if you could raise three and a half million dollars, you'd make it into the runoff. And I believe you have topped that figure. Is that correct? Yes, we have uh, exceeded our financial goal. We've raised over four million dollars. We finished uh, the last week and a half very strong. We put up more ads on TV than any other candidates. We're also on uh, bilingual stations, TV stations, radio stations as well. So we're running ads in Spanish, which should give us an added boost. And as of uh, Monday, um, Saturday morning, we also are running an ad on uh, black uh, radio as well. So we're reaching out as far as uh, we can throughout Chicago, because that's the type of mayor I want to be, and I want to garner votes from every neighborhood in Chicago. 
early on, I heard predictions that um, it was going to very likely be you and Paul Vallis in the runoff because the other seven candidates would split the African-American vote in such a way that none of them could get enough to make the runoff. Do you see that in do you see that working out? Uh, I think the possibility, the perhaps likelihood of a runoff between uh, Ballas and I is uh, a pretty good one. Uh, it's my sense that uh, as the undecideds uh, make their decisions, that we've got a great shot at bringing them into our column in these final days. I think these are voters that are thinking hard about who they're going to vote for, and most importantly, who's got the experience, who's got the relationships, who's got the know-how to get things done. This is about getting Chicago uh, working again after the pandemic, after the civil disturbances that we've experienced. And I think the takeaways from both of those experiences is that we've got to address inequities. We can only do that when we bring people together. I'm committed to ensuring that my government is representative of all the people in Chicago, much like we saw in, you know, unprecedented administration after Harold Washington was elected mayor. He believed in coalitions. I do as well. And that's the type of governance that I want to bring to Chicago. Most of the candidates have uh, one person who they would like to face in the runoff, the candidate who they feel offers the greatest contrast to their positions and policies. Who is that for you? Look, uh, I think that because I've been fighting the machine for 40 years, because I've been a bench builder by helping elect the next generation of young leaders to city council, to the county board, countywide, and to the state legislature, both chambers, and even to the United States Congress. I'm the only one with that type of experience. So it really doesn't matter who I face off against. That is the track record that I'm going to run on. Someone who contributes, someone who thinks about the future, and someone who helps build the branch of electing young progressive leaders to important places, whether they're judges or state reps or senators, uh, members of Congress, uh, or members of the county board. Uh, No one else has that experience. No one else has that track record. And it doesn't really matter who I run against. You know, in a lot of these forums, ours included, but I watched uh, a lot of different forums for the candidates, and it sort of seemed like the candidate with the loudest voice or the most anger got the lion's share of the attention. But that is not your style. You're um, a very relaxed, kind of low-key, not-going-to-scream-at-you kind of guy. Is Does that hold you back when you're faced with a bunch of other people who have loud voices? Uh, no. Uh, people uh, know that I'm a barn burner when I need to be. I did it in Iowa for Bernie Sanders. I did it in Nevada, in Arizona, in California. I stopped for Joe Biden in 13 states during his presidential campaign. Uh, Folks know that when a crowd needs to be fired up, I fired him up. Uh, (laughs) What I sought to convey, you know, in the uh, forums that that we had is real policy. 
And I ask people to go on our websites and compare the policy positions that we have uh, put up. Uh, we put up 17 policy pieces. It's why I have the support of 16 unions who have come out and said, Chewy stands with working people wherever he has served. And I also have the support of 25 elected officials. They range from members of Congress to state representatives and many other positions because people know me and they know that I've been consistent and that I'm a warrior when it comes to important issues and justice. Tell me what you most want to accomplish as mayor, because, you know, being a congressman, that's a pretty good job. There's a lot of people that would really like that job. And you're you're giving it up for a job that, well, let's face it, there's going to be a bunch of people who hate you. That just seems to go with the territory for every every mayor. There's going to be a lot of people in your face and it's going to be maybe a lot less decorum. So what is motivating you to go from from Congress to City Hall? First, uh, being a member of Congress is such a high honor. And the four years that I served have been phenomenal. Uh, you know, the Trump uh, two Trump years, the impeachment trials, the insurrection, but then the good stuff, the legislation was passed, the Infrastructure and Jobs Act most significant piece of legislation since the New Deal is going to allow us to rebuild Chicago and the country. The investment in green manufacturing, great potential for Chicago. The investment in fighting climate change and energy investment so people can put solar panels on their roofs and new heating pumps and air conditioning units in their basement. This is unprecedented. These are essential building blocks that will enable us to put huge numbers of people to work, lots of people to acquire new work skills in the uh, you know economy that will be growing significantly. These are some of the best investments in job and job training that a, any city could ask for. I see this as the tools in the toolbox for rebuilding Chicago. But back to the big question, Chicago needs new leadership. The city's on the wrong track, and I'm the only candidate with the experience at all levels of government to build the coalitions that we'll need for a safer and more prosperous Chicago, whether it's addressing the rise in property taxes, we need to work with Springfield, whether it's uniting with other mayors to do the same and to increase the amount of revenue sharing that other cities and Chicago need, or increasing funding for public education. Uh, Chicago can ally with other mayors and other school advocates to do that. This is an important time. The governor has already signaled that there's going to be an unprecedented investment in early childhood education. These are essential things for so many communities out there. Investing in communities, implementing comprehensive community development strategies to increase the number of housing units in areas that haven't seen new housing built. That is what excites an urban planner like me. Remember, I spent 10 years in the field of community development. I have a network across Chicago. People have come up with their own community development plans all over Chicagoland. They just need an ally in City Hall to bring investment. We need to get our economic uh, engines churning again. 
They can produce jobs. They can produce revenues. And I intend to be that type of a leader. Green manufacturing and growing our tech sector offers tremendous opportunities for Chicago to come back and begin growing its population once again. That is so essential to stabilizing the city and its future growth, and it will produce revenues that we can invest in the neediest neighborhoods across Chicago. So how are you going to spend this last 24 hours before people, before the polls close? Well, I'm going to be uh, crisscrossing uh, the city tomorrow. I'm going to be um, motivating our volunteers to get the vote out. We've got uh, phone banks that are going on as we speak. We are texting people. We are turning out the vote. I really want to instill a sense of hope and confidence in people that we can turn the corner on the violence and the crime that has risen. It's really important to understand and appreciate that a lot of the violence is rooted in the economic realities of our city. I've taken time to understand these realities. I uh, have solutions to them. My urban planning background, I think, is a great asset to the city, as are my relationships with leaders all over. So building a robust coalition of the 21st century, being inclusive and ensuring that there's equity are the most ingredient, the most important ingredients that we need to work with to rebuild Chicago. Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia, I wish you a lot of luck. We will be watching these races very closely tomorrow night. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you, Joan. Always a pleasure. That's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Stay safe, my friends. Good night.